Uh, well, excited to have you all here this morning. Welcome if you're visiting. Especially grateful to have you with us uh, this morning. Love to meet you after the service. If you have a moment, um, I'll be down at the front. Would love to introduce myself to you. I was thinking this morning as um, the service was kind of unfolding, um, the, the, the routine of what we do on Sunday mornings can oftentimes become that, somewhat routine, and, and, and maybe we can even lose sight, even as leaders, of why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And um, if you've been a part of Solid Rock for you know, any number of weeks, months, years, you notice kind of a rhythm to what we do. Early on in the service, one of our elders will come up and lead us in a time of prayer, and just like Ken did this morning, ask you first to pray for yourself. And the thing that we always encourage you to pray for is to ask God to speak to you individually. And then we encourage you to think of somebody else in the room and pray for that person. And, and I hope you do. I hope you think about um, whether it's the person sitting next to you or maybe God just uh, flashes an image of somebody sitting across the room who you don't even know that you would just pray for them in faith that God would speak to them. And then after we sing and we worship God and, and before we open the Bible together, I typically come up and pray and ask God to do a similar thing, to speak to us through his word. And, and I want you to know that, first of all, we do that because when God speaks to us, it's to our good. It's always to our God because God speaks what is true and what is true leads to healing and leads to life and leads to meaning and purpose that you can't find anywhere else in this world. And, and we believe at Solid Rock that God speaks uh, generally through creation. You can go out and you can understand a little bit about who God is by looking at what he has created, but specifically he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he speaks to us through his word. And so when we pray together, God speak to us. I want you to know we're asking for something supernatural to happen. We're asking for the God who created the universe that we behold outside these doors um, and the people, he created the people who inhabit this room and this space and time. We're asking him to speak to each one of us. And I don't know if you come into church with that kind of expectation, but I'm about to lead us in prayer, and I would invite you to be so courageous as to pray this with me, that God would speak to you today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning, that God, the way you indwell us, and you dwell among us, and when we gather in your name, Father, you make your presence known in a powerful way. And now, God, as we open the Bible and we read it, Father, we desperately desire to hear from you. And God, my prayer this morning is that as you speak, God, through your word to each person in this room, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts ready to respond, ready to receive, ready to, to obey and, and follow in faith, trusting that when you speak, God, it is to our good. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning, the end of 5 and, and, the, and the beginning of 6. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, go ahead and do that. Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series where we're um, walking through how God meets us through the gospel in our most desperate moments in life and how um, Paul declared in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to Timothy, a young pastor, hey, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying, Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the foremost. And now what we're doing is we're applying that gospel application to our own lives, and as we go through this sermon series, after we look at how the gospel meets us in our deepest and most desperate moments in life, how God works in uh, our most desperate and broken moments in life as we just sang to turn them into 
beautiful things through redemption. Um, we're also getting an opportunity to hear how that work has played out in the lives of our leaders here at the church. And so I've asked our staff and elders to share a piece of their testimony. And so every week you're going to get a chance to hear a little bit more. Today you're going to get to hear from the Darlene's and, and, um, and mostly from David Darlene, one of, one of our newer elders. And so um, that's where we're headed this morning. Now we're going to talk today about God's abounding grace. God's abounding grace. And the misconception about God's abounding grace, we mean grace without measure, grace without bounds, is that, this is the misunderstanding, that if God pours out grace on us and covers up our sins, covers up our mistakes, that somehow that's going to lead to more sin and just taking advantage of God and, and never being transformed to becoming like Jesus. And so today we're going to look at God's counsel through Romans, again, the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6 at God's abounding grace towards us and how that abounding grace towards us never comes to us without transformation, without effect on our lives. In the end of chapter 5, Paul has talked about um, the law and he's talked about um, how God is working um, and, and how the law reveals sin and how when the law reveals sin, God meets us there with grace. And in verses 20 and 21, we read, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded or increased all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, several things were said in those two verses, but the overwhelming theme is this idea of increase. The law came, when the law came, trespass increased, right? Sin increased, but where sin increased, grace increased or abounded even more than that. So what is Paul saying here? So I was thinking about um, what he means here when he says that law came to increase the trespass. When we think about trespass, we think about stepping onto somebody's property who doesn't belong to us or crossing a boundary or some type of a bound of some sort. And um, thinking about how uh, the, the, the settlement of the United States worked in, in the 18th cent- or ni- 19th century, so the 1800s, um, how like um, ranchers would just allow their cattle and their livestock to just graze. And, and, and there was this understood thing that while right, property has boundaries to it, the livestock themselves can just graze wherever. And so we had these open range laws in central and western United States that allowed cattle just to graze freely. Now with the invention of like barbed wire, right, a way to bound up property lines in, in, in the late 19th century, right, ranchers began to, to really not just hold cattle or livestock in, but to keep livestock out. And so now there were boundaries between property owners to where they could begin now to dispute and argue and battle and wage war and fight about this boundary and that boundary. And so what Paul is saying is like, there was actually, in the same way, there was actually trespassing that took place before the boundaries were set. You didn't know the trespass was there until the boundary was set, right? Until the fence was there, you didn't know you crossed over. And so Paul is saying like, there was sin before the law came. But what law, the law of God has done for us is to set boundaries so that we know where sin is, right? And so when the law came, there's this increased awareness now and knowledge of sin as God's creation began to cross bounds or cross boundaries that God set up for us in his law, right? And so what Paul is saying is that with the law, law came 
to increase the trespass or an awareness of where trespasses were, but where sin increased, this is his main point, grace increased all the more. Grace abounded all the more. So however dark, however much your sin is, God's grace is more. So that as sin reigned in death, right, this was, the, this was the curse at the garden when God said, Adam, don't eat, don't disobey. Here's a boundary, don't cross it. If you cross this fence, if you cross this boundary from obedience into disobedience, you will surely die. And so with sin entered death into the world, and we see this, this idea that from that moment forward, sin is, and death are reigning here on earth until Christ wins the victory over sin and death. That's what he's saying. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so there's this idea of increased sin, increased grace. But ultimately what, what God is going to speak to us through Romans 6 is this idea of reigning. Who is reigning over your life now? Is it sin and death or is it the resurrected Christ? And so that leads us into now Romans 6 where Paul asked this really helpful rhetorical question that he's probably anticipating the church is beginning to think about. So if that's true, Paul, if where my sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more, right? As sinful human beings, what do we do with that? Well, game on, right? More glory to God if I just, the more I sin, the more grace I receive, the more glory God gets, and I'll just go run rampant, which leads to this, right, this antinomial thought that, right, gloves are off, I do whatever I want, whatever feels good, and God will clean up the mess at the end, and we're good. Paul says in verse 1 of Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's asking that rhetorical question because he's, he knows the sinful hearts of men because he is one. He's anticipating how we might respond to God's abounding grace. Verse 2, he answers this. He doesn't want to leave this question lingering very long. I don't think so. By no means. And then he asks another rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised, resurrected from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, here, here lies the struggle that we began talking about last week. We looked at, in 1 John chapter 1, how John calls us out and says, Listen, church, you need to be living this lifestyle of, of walking in the light, Open confession and ownership of sin. If you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. Somebody was paying attention. And not only that, you're making God out to be a liar because he says there's sin in your life, right? So as Christ followers, there's this lingering, ongoing wrestling with sin. Yet, that, that wrestling with sin should be on the decrease and the walking in the newness of life should be on the increase as we are every day being transformed to be more like Christ, both through victories and most often through trials and struggles. God is bringing to an end the reign of, of, of sin and death in our lives and every day 
growing, cultivating this newness of life. And so as Christians, right, the misconception is now that I'm a Christian, I will no longer sin. Wouldn't that be nice? But John says, hey, 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 let's don't, don't make God out to be a liar. You're not done wrestling with sin. But then Paul is saying, listen, just because you're wrestling with sin doesn't mean just give in. Like the key is to wrestle. The key is to struggle well. And so now what Paul is going to do, he's going to give us two really helpful commands in our battle against sin. Because it's not enough to just say, don't sin. That should be enough, right? It should be enough for God to say, don't do that. And we just don't do it. Problem is, right, when we begin to put that into practice because we're still wrestling with sin, nature, like Paul says in the next chapter, Romans 7, sometimes there are things I don't want to do that I keep doing. And sometimes there are things I know I need to be doing that I haven't been able to do yet. But Paul is not calling us to wave the white flag and just give in and let sin run rampant. He's saying, no, 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 no. You're being transformed. You've been baptized into Christ. You've been buried with him in death. The old you has been buried in death. Sin is being put to death in your life that you may walk in the newness of life found through faith in the resurrection of Jesus. And so our first command that Paul gives to us is not don't sin. We already have that command. Now he's going to give us a helpful command on how to, how to not sin. In verse 11, he says, so you also must, that's a strong word, consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound like too hard of a command, yet it's a command. This is an imperative verb to consider. So in your struggle, in your battle against sin, Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to consider something. Oh, what do I need to consider? Well, the word consider here uh, means to think about or to calculate or to reckon something inwardly. Have you ever had to reckon something inwardly? Something didn't make sense to you? So you thought about it, and you thought about it. Maybe you, again, wrestled with it or contemplated or, or thought about it for maybe even days on end before you came to a place of reckoning or reconciling, whatever it was you were wrestling with. That's essentially what this word means, consider. Reckon something inwardly calculate it, think about it, meditate on it until you get it. So what is he telling us to think about, to consider, to calculate, to to reckon inwardly? Here it is, this truth that you are dead to sin and alive to God. We need to reckon that inwardly. We need to think about that. We need to calculate what that means and by what means we've attained that as we consider. So here's essentially what I think Paul is saying to us with this consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ is this, regardless of the sin struggle that remains in your life, okay, that doesn't define who you are now in Christ, so you are to declare to yourself who you are in Christ. Think of it that way, right? As you As you wrestle with what this means, I'm dead to sin and alive to Christ, Paul is essentially calling us to declare something to ourselves. Declare this to yourself, church. I am dead to sin. Consider that. Think about it. Calculate that. Declare that to yourselves. You're dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then, this is where abounding grace comes in. 
Then we attempt, we think about, we meditate on, and we try to calculate the grace of God, the amount of grace of God it takes, right, to consider and to declare me righteous. See, where Paul started was this. Hey, where sin increases, grace is going to abound. A lot of grace has been poured out on you, church, right? That's what he's saying to us. A lot of grace has been poured out on us. So stop and consider something. Because of God's abounding grace, you're now dead to sin and alive in Christ. Calculate that or try to. Mind blown. Right? I mean, with every waking hour where I come in contact with my sinful nature, the more I understand God's abounding grace. And I'm not done understanding it yet. I love Ephesians 2 because there's this reference in Ephesians 2 to our salvation and being made alive in Christ where Paul's like, you know what? The, this, this, this praise of God's goodness to us is gonna echo into eternity. And the way I you know, interpret what Paul is saying is that like, we won't even get over this abounding grace in eternity. Day one, in heaven, if you and I get there at the same time or you're there before, you're gonna see me and you're gonna go, whoa, God is full of grace. He let you in? And then day two, you're going to go, oh my gosh, you're still here. And what's going to happen is just this overwhelming, increasing awareness of the goodness of God and his abounding grace. Now, I'm somewhat just making that part up, but I think that there will be this, this, this ever, never-ending, transcendent echo of God's goodness and, and grace towards us, even in eternity. When I see you there and you see me there, we will declare God's grace is immeasurable. But here in this life, as we every day wrestle with our sin, there's something beautiful happening because we're discovering the boundless, the endless grace of God towards us. And Paul is saying, here's your first command. Consider that. Think about it. Calculate it. Declare it to yourself. You're now dead to sin, and you are alive in Christ. You need to preach that to yourself, church. I need to preach that to myself. I had to preach that to myself this morning. God, why have you called me to get up on the stage and talk about this? I'm probably the worst one. God said, let's talk for a minute. I want you to preach this to yourself, that what you're about to go preach to them. Then in verse 12, 14, we're going to get to his second command to us. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. How do we do that? Here's how. Verse 13, do not present your members, this is the members of your body, your life to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, past tense, brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under this abounding grace. Now the command embedded in those verses comes to us in really two different ways. First of all, as a negative, do not present. But then he flips it and says, now present. So do not present your, your members to sin. Instead, present yourself to God, and I had to do some work on this this week to figure out what in the world are you talking about present. 
I really, I like this word. I think it's really helpful, but we don't capture the full meaning with one word. It, it means to stand by or be near to something. So to present yourself to something. So now we begin to get some idea of what he's talking about here. Don't present yourself to sin. Don't walk in nearness to sin, but instead, if we're going to present ourselves to God, we've got to stand by God. We've got to walk in nearness to God. And that's what he means by present yourself, your body, your members. Like, don't present yourself to sin, but instead present yourself to God. Once again, in faith, that you have been brought from death to life. It's already happened for you. Now, when we think about not presenting ourselves to sin and presenting ourselves to God, immediately begin to think about tangible things, right? Especially when it comes to sin. So for the alcoholic, we think about geographical boundaries. Don't go to a bar. Don't present yourself. Don't walk in nearness to that sin struggle in your life. Now, there's some pragmatic help there, but that doesn't cure anything, does it? It doesn't fix anything in the heart just to take something away from our kid and say, stop, Right, being selfish with this thing, they'll be selfish with something else. Right? Well, the sin will transfer to some something else and manifest in a different way. So he's not just talking about geographical boundaries. Don't present yourself to sin. While that's helpful, I think what he's actually getting at, if we'll continue reading, is a heart issue here, and how we cease to present our heart to sin. Right? And instead, we begin to present our heart, our affections now towards God. Look at what he says in the next few verses, 16 through 19. Do you not know that if you present, same word, yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So he's going to say, right, as you present yourselves to sin, you're going to become a slave to sin. You're going to obey its, its desires and passions, which leads to death. Or... You can present yourselves, right, in obedience, so or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you and me, who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the what? Heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed the gospel. So here's what... Paul's saying is ultimately, this is a heart issue. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So how do we do that? How do I present myself now to righteousness, present myself to God? It's a hard issue. This is where we set our affections. Did you know that you can set your affections? Right, you can just go with the flow and do what comes natural and chase your affections and let them lead you and guide you wherever you want they want to lead and guide you. Or you can take captive your thoughts and you can set your affections. How do you do that? By declaring what your treasure is. If you don't declare what your treasure is, your sinful nature will guide you to treasures. And the culture around you is trying to sell you treasures every day. 
This is where you find meaning in life. This is where you find acceptance in life. And so we, we call those things treasures. If I have that, if I do that, if I become that, I'll be somebody. I'll have peace. I'll have joy. And so we latch on to things and we declare them as our treasures. And what Paul's saying here is, listen, you've got to declare what your treasure is. Do you know you could declare what your treasure is? You can tell yourself what is of real value. How do you do that? You consider and you calculate and you think about the goodness of God and his abounding grace towards you. The most powerful thing you can do as a Christian is never get over how much grace God has poured out on you. Consider that. Calculate that. Declare that to yourself. Set your affections on things that are where? Above where Christ is. Draw your gaze off of the cheap trinkets of this world. And I call them cheap, but in our hearts, they're not cheap. They're big time. This promotion, this possession, this, this accolade, this, these big things in our mind. God would say, those are cheap trinkets, church. They are. They're cheap. Throw them in the junk drawer. And set your affections on things that are higher, things that are above. And now we begin to understand why Paul is saying at the very beginning that where sin increases, guess what? God's grace abounds all the more. You don't have to go searching for real treasure, do you? If you're in Christ, you've got it. And this is where the grace of God becomes effectual. It changes us. Sometimes ever so slowly, but it never does nothing. The gospel being proclaimed never does nothing. When God pours out grace and mercy in your life, it never does nothing. Sometimes it's a slow change, right? We love the metaphor of the tree growing. It's like watching a tree grow. You can't see it grow, but over time, you can see the transformation take place. You see maturity happening you can eventually see that the tree has grown, right? And that's the way God's grace most often works in our lives. When we truly understand the magnitude of his grace, our lives will be drawn in nearness to God. You won't want to be anywhere else. There'll be no other safe place on earth, no other place of meaning for you, but near to God, right? He's a roaring lion. He's both dangerous and safe. And his grace calls us into his nearness and there's nowhere else we want to be. We don't trust anything or anyone else but God and God alone. When we're walking near to God, we will walk in obedience to God, no longer giving life to sinful nature, but instead walking in the newness of life that Paul's proclaiming here. God's abounding Grace. I think there's some misunderstanding about God's grace. Um, when we talk about God's abounding grace, we're not talking about sweeping things under the rug. God's grace, when we talked about last week, is also married with his justice. Right? That's what the cross is about. God pouring out his wrath and his anger and his punishment and his judgment and his justice on his own son. On the only innocent one. And in that we see both God's justice and his love. 
we talk about God's grace, we're talking about a, a grace we don't deserve. Let's go ahead and let's, let's just consider that, can we? Let's calculate that. Let's declare that. I don't deserve God's grace. Let's don't buy into this. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I haven't done as much as so-and-so. Like, just erase all that. You don't deserve God's grace, and I don't deserve it. We also can't afford to purchase it. You can't buy it, so that's the person who's like, as soon as I get my life right, then I'll come back to church, right? As soon as I get everything in order, I'm too embarrassed to walk in like I am now, I gotta get everything in order. What that person indirectly is saying is I gotta fix myself, then I'll come to God. You can't do that. Not only can you not afford to purchase it, you can't afford to pay it back, which is the person who's been saved, who then spends the rest of their life trying to work out and pay for their salvation. In other words, they're fueled by this sense of guilt, and, and it's, it's good to serve God. It's good to be involved in what God is doing, as long as you're not doing that, trying to just pay God back, because God says, here's the deal. You can't afford it. You can't pay me back. God's grace is free to the recipient, yet incredibly expensive to the giver. It cost him his son. So that's what it costs to purchase your grace. Anybody afford that? Anybody have a savior in your back pocket you can send to the cross? Okay, we can't afford it, can we? We can't pay it back. And when we consider these things and try to calculate the abundance of God's grace, it will begin to work in us in such a way that we will be drawn away from nearness to sin and drawn into nearness with God. And nearness to God leads to obedience with God and life transformation. And Paul says, Here, church, here's what you need to do. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, but don't think that that's a license to just go rampantly do whatever you want. Here's how you battle well with sin. Here's how you wrestle with the sin nature. Here's how you put sin to death. You consider, calculate, declare to yourself what is true and God's abundant grace to you, and present yourself to God. Walk in nearness to God. Allow that abundant grace to stir your affections for God and set your treasure on Christ. In Romans 6, Paul gives us two primary commands in our battle against sin. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ and present yourselves near to God rather than near to sin. Paul says that when we obey the command to consider our identity and our worth according to the gospel, we are empowered then and stirred to draw near to God and away from sin. And when we walk in nearness to sin, we'll give in to it and we'll obey its desires. However, when we walk in nearness to God by setting our affections on him, we will walk in obedience to God and sin will no longer have dominion over our lives. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? So he's not saying pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and quit sinning. He's saying we've got to fight the battle in a different place. The battle starts here in your heart. It starts with where your affections are set. Now I want to wrap up what we're doing here and we're going to get a chance to listen to how this has worked in the lives of one of our elders as David Darlene is going to share um, some of his story not only about how he came to know Christ but also about how Christ has worked this out in his life in a specific area. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to stop here and let you know, after we watch his testimony video, our worship team will be back up front, and our prayer partners will be in the room, the front and the back, as they always are, ready to pray with you, to pray for you, to talk with you. If you're here today, 
and you have not made a decision to trust in Jesus as your Savior, personally, your only hope in this life, then our prayer partners would love the opportunity to talk with you and pray with you about trusting in Christ today. Maybe there's some sin struggle in your life that's come to the surface this morning, and and A, you you need to confess that to God. You need to own it. He already knows it. You just need to own it. Say, God, this is where I've been given in, allowing sin to reign in my life rather than you. B, that sin struggle may impact or affect others in your life that you also need to go talk with today, okay? And so as, we, as I pray and then we listen to the video, I want you to consider how God is speaking to you and what he's calling you to do in response to his abounding grace. Let's pray together and then we'll watch the video. Father, thank you for this beautiful, powerful message today from Romans Five and six, God, this reminder to us all that, God, your law reveals just how sinful we are and just how deep and desperate our need is for your grace. And, God, that doesn't sound like good news until we read the words that where sin increases, your grace abounds all the more. God, we thank you for your abounding grace to us and the way that you've made that abounding grace available through faith in Jesus. Father, this morning as you've spoken to us, God, now I pray you would guide us, you would assist us, you would speak to us, you would call us to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name.